Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, isn't cheap clothing great? Maybe not. Hear Andrew Morgan tell a story you'll want to hear. Uh-oh, not another challenging story about how we need to change our lifestyle in order to change the world. Are we supposed to stop wearing clothes now? Yeah, that's interesting. Not well, up here in uh, Oregon. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, not exactly, but cheap clothes come from cheap labor, and cheap labor is about misery and even death. And we can insist that clothing be made by people who have rights, safety, and decent wages, that it be made to last rather than be quickly tossed into our dumps, and that it be made with minimum pollution. Today, we're interviewing Andrew Morgan, the director of The True Cost, a powerful film about the fashion industry from top to bottom, and it is an eye-opener. There are horror stories like the collapse of a factory in Bangladesh where 1,127 workers died because they were forced to go back into a dangerous building despite their complaints. And there are hopeful stories about people who are trying to change all that. Today, Andrew will inform our minds and touch our hearts. We can help. Stay tuned, and Andrew Morgan will show us how. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome everybody to this show. So I want to tell you absolutely honestly that I avoided watching this film (laughs) (laughs) until nearly the last minute. And the reason that, it's not because I feel guilty because I'm a person, my new clothes are six years old. I'm kidding you not. My regular normal clothes are about 15 years old and I still have 40 year old clothes in the closet. So it's not that I'm a big uh, consumer of clothes, but it's just like, oh, God, you just it's so painful to see people and their misery, you know, and I just like to, I, I want to not think about it. It's like, oh, I don't want to think about the suffering of the animals and the farms, and I, I don't want to think about the suffering of the, I, but that's why we have Interrevolutionary Radio, because we do want to think about these things, but we want to think about them in a positive way, if that is at all possible. And in addition to that, we try to have fun on this show, even though the topics we talk about are deadly serious. So... We are going to be having some new listeners. Uh, You know, we are produced by Voice America Radio. We're on the Variety Channel, and we air live every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on Voice America. But we are now starting something wonderful, 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 which is we are being syndicated to the affiliates of Pacifica Foundation. These people are, you know, pioneers in... um, listener-sponsored radio, people who are not in corporate uh, pockets, and we are so privileged and happy that we are going to be reaching some of Pacifica's affiliates, and we hope that you guys love us because we love being with you, and we hope many of you start tuning into Interrevolutionary Radio. So, what we're going to do right now is we're going to hear from James. He's going to give us the news of the inner revolution. Now, some of you will never have heard of us before, and you'll say, what is the inner revolution? And where the heck is it? Well, I know what it is, but I'm not sure where it is. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. why we need the news of the inner revolution. <laughs> right. Sometimes I get kind of desperate, and I wonder if it really is here. But anyway, the inner revolution is about us changing our perspective, you know, 
uh, starting to get into oneness, like realizing that we're one and we have to take care of one another. And it's about accountability for our impact on ourselves, on one another, on the earth. And it's about mutual support where we all support the whole and the whole supports us. And, you know, we're really excited because there are fabulous people in the world like Andrew Morgan, people who really care. And I'm always staggered to find them, you know, and I'm also equally staggered to find all the meanness and the venom. <laughs> you know, whenever you try to do something positive, there's always somebody who's going to cut you down. And if you want to see meanness and venom, go to our Facebook page. <laughs> it's not, called, not from us, but from uh, other people. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> www.facebook.com forward slash the inner Rev, and you will see people. I've been last week. I started getting death threats, which was really new for me. But um, you know, somebody wrote, "Don't worry about it, Beth. You must be doing something right." So anyway, we're trying to do what we feel is right, and we're not like into doctrinaire. You know, what we're into is really a new approach. And what we love about our guest today is that he went out there and he was willing to ask questions about something that all of us do, which is wear clothes. And he came out with some astonishing things, and he has some good news for us, too. But before we get to him, James is going to tell us about some of the wonderful, positive things that have happened on the planet in the last week. So take it away, James. And so here we are. This is the Interrevolutionary News. As you know, we at the interrevolution.org, some of you may know, we've launched a campaign, the campaign called to, the Campaign to Unite All Movements. And you can learn about it at our website and at our Facebook page, Beth Green and the Interrevolution. The essence of the Campaign to Unite All Movements is that we all need to stop focusing on fighting for ourselves, but start fighting for one another as well. It's oneness in action. And so we're always looking for stories about just that. So we're delighted to share with you this great story from the Huntington Post, Huffington Post rather, December 31st, 2015. Muslims use New Year's Eve in Times Square to stand against extremism. Wearing shirts that said True Islam in bold white lettering against a blue background on the front and with the word extremists crossed out on the back, dozens of Muslims who are members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association USA passed out flyers in Times Square with what they called the 11 clear points that separate true Islam from the extremists. The flyers are part of a new national campaign called True Islam and the Extremists, which began two weeks ago at the Baitul Hamid Mosque in San Bernardino County and aims to dispel what it calls misconceptions about the religion. Among the 11 points that Islam rejects terrorism, promotes women's equality, and supports freedom of conscience, religion, and speech. The Ahmadiyya are a minority Islamic group and have often been persecuted themselves. The Muslims had come in hopes of changing a few minds about Islam. Talking about New Year's Eve, it's a day where the world converges for one day, said Salam Bati, a volunteer spokesman. So if we can get a few seconds to say we exist and we are here and we are peaceful, then we've accomplished something. That wasn't the only positive action of the group. Once the Times Square ball had dropped and the crowds cleared out, a handful returned to Manhattan with trash bags and latex gloves, ready to help sanitation workers clean up the confetti, streamers, food, and drinks that make up the dirty aftermath of one of the world's biggest outdoor parties. 
<laughs> it's our way of giving back and showing the true good deeds of Islam, said Bhatti. Nice. This is a great way to help heal the rift between Muslims and non-Muslims, and we're happy to report it. So uh, here's what I have to say about that. First, uh, you know, Ani Zonnefeld, who is the founder of Muslims for Progressive Values. I mean, she's been on our show twice now. The last time was Christmas Eve. And I mean, she's being, she's really getting serious death threats for the work that she's doing because she is really promoting progressive values in Islam, including women's total equality and LGBT rights and all of that. In fact, she says there is nothing against homosexuality in the Quran. So she is very cool. And there are people, this Ahmadiyya group is, they are not the same. I mean, they're not having women imams the way the Muslim progressive values are, but they are a much more progressive branch of Islam. And I bet you haven't even heard of them. So it's, it's very good to see. And in our campaign, it's like, we're saying, okay, it's terrible what uh, the, the bigotry against Muslims, and Muslims need to fight against that, but they also need to fight for everybody because this is the whole idea. We all need to fight for each other. Blacks need to fight for Muslims, and Muslims need to fight for Hispanics, and we all need to fight for gays, and gays need to fight for straights, and all of that stuff. So that's what we have to say about this. And what I love about this story is it's in action, small action, where people are really taking it into their own hands that we are going to be one with one another no matter what the leadership says. All right, take it away. Okay. Now, speaking of Muslims, here's another story that will make you feel good, we think. First it's you'll feel bad, then you'll feel good. <laughs> Here we go. It's about Gambia, which is in West Africa, and is in fact the smallest nation in mainland Africa. The topic is female genital mutilation. See, that's what's going to make you feel bad. Really? where part or all of women's clitoris is removed and there are zero health benefits. Female genital mutilation is concentrated in 27 African countries, Yemen and Iraqi Kurdistan, and found elsewhere in Asia, the Middle East, and among diaspora communities around the world, which means we even have it in the U.S. It is not restricted to Muslim groups and it's not part of the core beliefs of Islam. The UN has recognized it as a violation of human rights, but even where it's outlawed, the laws are rarely enforced. Is this article a sign of better things to come? This is from the Associated Press, December the 31st, 2015. Gambia sets prison time, fines, in new ban against female genital mutilation. Gambia's parliament has passed a bill banning female genital mutilation and setting strict penalties for offenders, a month after the president condemned the practice, which is carried out on many women in this West African country. A person who engages in female circumcision could face up to three years in prison or a fine of 50,000 delasi, which is $1,250, the new law says. If the act results in death, a person could face life imprisonment according to the bill which Parliament passed on Monday. President Yahya Jammeh condemned the practice in November, saying it was not mentioned in the Quran. Female genital mutilization is caused, has caused lifelong physical and emotional harm and can result in life-threatening complications during childbirth, the UK-based charity 28 Too Many has said. In 2010, female genital mutilation was carried out on nearly 80% of Gambian women and girls aged 15 to 49, the group said. Activists described Jame's stance as a welcome surprise. 
Jamey, in power since 1994, is often criticized for human rights abuses, including the torture of opponents and the persecution of Jays and lesbians. Who knows why President Jamey took this more enlightened stance? But we applaud the change and all the courageous people around the world who are trying to stop this horrific practice, which we believe is just part of the subjugation of women. Are we starting to hold people accountable? Beth? Well, that really is the question. You know, there's a lot of people who believe in cultural relativism. Oh, you, relativism. You can't say anything about female genital mutilation because, after all, it's part of their culture. Well, the hell with that. So is the subjugation of women around the world, including in many uh, Islamic nations. Despite the fact that Muhammad brought great uh, progress to Muslim women, uh, at the time, there is still a lot of of prejudice and subjugation of women in Islamic countries and in non-Islamic countries and right in our own country. <laughs> so I think that this thing about cultural relativism is happy horseshit because we have human, <laughs> there's human values and there are human rights and we all need to be thinking about that. So there are some people who are out there fighting this battle. It's kind of a, a, a grim. I mean, to think that it's taking place, it's happening in the UK, it's happening here, you know? I'm glad that we're, that someone is doing something about it, and I'm glad that there is a, a step forward in this little nation in Gambia. Maybe it's a sign that we're changing. I hope so. And if you want to hear some good, more good news about steps to support those who, like women, have been deprived of basic rights, we have some news from the Washington Post from January the 6th. It's about more incremental progress. And this article is entitled, A Big Win for Animals. Not to say that women and animals are the same. (laughs) Okay, okay. The FBI now tracks animal abuse like it tracks homicides. Homicides. Mary Lou Randauer, a psychologist who switched careers to devote herself full-time to animal rights advocacy, found there was no one keeping track of animal abuse crimes. Even the most egregious cases, like dogfighting, fell under the category of other when local police agencies reported their statistics to the FBI. So she began a concerted push for the FBI to elevate animal cruelty to its own separate offense category. After a years-long lobbying effort in 2014, the FBI agreed. And this year will be the first time it collects data on animal crimes the way it does for other serious crimes like homicide. The FBI defines cruelty cruelty to animals as, quote, intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly taking an action that mistreats or kills any animal without just cause, such as torturing, tormenting, mutilation, maiming, poisoning, or abandonment. There will be four categories of crimes, simple or gross neglect, intentional abuse and torture, organized abuse like dogfighting and cockfighting, and animal sexual abuse. Said Randauer, in most societies, it's recognized that creatures who are, that are dependent on others, whether the elderly or children or animals, need to be protected. The FBI, now counting animal abuse as a serious crime and backing it up with hard data, is a, quote, huge policy shift and significant step forward, unquote, said Scott Heiser, an attorney with the Animal Defense League. Now part of what has made this shift possible is that people are discovering that animal abuse is often a sign that people are likely to abuse other people. Dig this. There is overwhelming evidence that animal abuse is linked to crimes against people, including violent crimes and domestic violence, Randauer said. It's not about protecting people or animals. It's protecting them both. Beth? 
Well, I think the thing that's kind of wonderful and yet sad about this story is like what they have to prove that animal abuse uh, is a sign that people are going to uh, abuse people in order to get us to change. I mean, it's like it's not bad enough to, you know, that the animals are being abused. No, it has to somehow relate to us. So, you know, we are so egocentric that we think that if it doesn't hurt people, well, the hell with it. I mean, that's obvious because if you look at the state of the planet, you see what we've done to the other species. And, well, I don't have to tell you. So if you're out there and you're thinking about abusing animals, just remember the FBI has got more of a handle on this than they have before. So, but none of our listeners would do a thing like that. Go ahead, James. And I think we've we got go. one more story. One more story. And this story shows that we can become more accountable for our health and well-being and the health and well-being of our kids. Associated Press, uh, this is January the 4th, 2016. Here's more proof the push for healthier school lunches is working. A new study shows students are choosing more fruits and vegetables thanks to the National Nutrition Drive. The University of Washington study shows the Healthy Hungry Free Kids Act is having a positive impact on students' nutrition. The federal government was criticized for sweeping changes to the National Student Lunch Program when it launched the effort to make school meals healthier in 2012. But new research shows that skepticism may be unwarranted. The analysis compared the food students bought during the 16 months of school before the change in school lunch nutritional changes to the purchases made over a period of 15 months afterward. It found that the nutritional quality of the students' 1.7 million meals, specifically their calcium, vitamin C, vitamin A, iron, fiber, and protein content, increased 29%, while caloric content per gram decreased 13% due to the changes. University of Washington Health Services professor Donna Johnson, the study's lead author, stated, why would we feed our children unhealthy foods? How can you really? make that argument? How can you make that argument? <laughs> I think it gets caught up with a, a lot of the ongoing political dialogues about the role of government. But really, it's about the health of our children. And I think most people get it. Beth? Well, I like that story a lot because, you know, it's so obvious that there are things that the federal government has to do. And, you know, I, I don't get it. When somebody says, oh, the federal government can ban abortion, but they can't make sure that kids eat healthy food. I mean, that makes no sense. Anyway, I could go on for another hour on that, but I won't because I want to bring in Andrew Morgan. <laughs> and, uh, but, oh, my God, there is so much to say about that. Uh, you know, our world is kind of crazy. Uh, it's more than kind of crazy. It's extremely crazy. And if you want to see how crazy the world is, you watch this movie, The True Cost. And I know one place that you can watch it is on Netflix because James and I did get to see it there. And I'm so happy to introduce you to Andrew Morgan. I have a lot of questions to ply him with. And I'd like to invite him to join us right now. Andrew, are you still with us? Absolutely. It's great to be here. Okay. Did you feel cheered up or depressed by the news? Uh, a little bit of both, but it's good. I mean, those were stories that I had, uh, I had missed, so they're very interesting, all of them. I'm really glad that you said that because sometimes I wonder if we drive people away, <laughs> you know, if they don't listen to the interview because they don't want to listen to the news. But I, I agree with you. There is so much going on in the world. It's so easy to miss things. I, yeah. I like what Andrew said, that uh, pe people will want not to miss these kinds of realities, I think, to, know, to really know what's going on. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. And it's encouraging. So, should we start with the good news or the bad news, or, Andrew? Why don't we start with the bad news? <laughs> 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 what, 
I'm, I mean, I read the, the, you know, I've got all kinds of statistics written down, but you know all this by heart. I'm going to let you be the expert and I'm just going to be the dumb questioner. Um, and I'd like you to kind of give people an idea of the scope of the fashion industry and, and the changes of the outsourcing and the fast fashion so people really get an overall picture of, because, you know, we're like, I go to the store, I see the price, I say, wow, that's so cheap, I love it, two for five dollars or whatever it is. And, you know, I said, oh, this is so great. You know, and, and but people don't know what's going on behind the scenes that make that two for five dollars possible. So can you just kind of start out with giving us an overview of what's going on in the fashion industry? Sure. Well, I think when a lot of people think about fashion, you know, they think about uh, beautiful designs and clothes and it's fun and it's light. Um, and, you know, underneath that is a is a very, very serious industry, uh, an industry that records profit in the billions and an industry that has a surprising influence on um, a variety of key groups of people in our world. And I think maybe the, the most notable place to start is just that this is an industry that has been changing um, kind of at light speed, you know, just in our lifetime. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of references. And uh, in the U.S., um, back in the 1960s, we were making more than 95% of our clothes here in the U.S., um, you fast forward to now, we make less than 3% of our clothes in the U.S., and the rest is exported um, uh, or imported, I should say, from developing countries around the world. At the same time, because of that, and, and a lot of the, uh, the price pressure that's pushed uh, down in those supply chains that we'll chat about, um, the amount of clothing that the world now consumes in the last 20 years alone has shot up 400%. And it has made way for a business model that's uh, been described now as fast fashion, where you're seeing people consume clothing at just an alarming rate at a very low price point and at a very, very low quality point where clothing mm-hmm. has transitioned in one generation from something that we, that we invest in, that we love, that we wear and hold on to, maybe even pass down, to now something where the average wears can be as little as two or three times. And it comes into our life and it goes out of our life. And you know, as we can discuss and as you can imagine, that creates a world of impact as it relates to the environment and certainly this unseen army of workers that, that really power this industry behind the scenes. You know, there are so many aspects to this story that you cover so well and so, you know, where you actually see the human cost. It's like, it's one thing to read about, oh, Bangladesh, oh, my God, there was, a, you know, the building collapsed, or, oh, India, there's pollution, or, oh, there's pesticides in the cotton. But when you actually see it, I mean, I think that the heroes of today's world are the filmmakers. I'm not kidding. We have had, like, we had a cowspiracy. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, we had uh, Keegan Coon uh, on the other day. And, uh, you know, you look at the film and you say, oh, my God, I gotta, uh, I've got to do something. 
because it's so compelling. And there is a lot of documentary filmmakers now who I think have done a, a brilliant job of, of really raising awareness. I mean, I really do think, you know, they, there was uh, this bemoaning of the fact that the news was going down because we, they were breaking up the old newspapers, couldn't survive anymore in the digital age. But at the same time, you're seeing a lot of real in-depth reporting by people like you who are willing to go out there and face all of this. And I have to ask you a question about that before we go back to the facts, the hmm. dismal facts. Um, <laughs> is How can you stomach it? How can you go to these places and see these pollutants being dropped into the river? How can you look at the faces of these people who are being impacted by these chemicals and who are deformed and are these skin diseases? How can you walk into these factories and see these conditions and, and you know, sleep at night? How do you do it? Uh, your, your question just gave me chills because it took me right back to some of those moments. Um, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. You know, I think... Um, uh, this this film was life changing to me, and and in a very personal, very profound way. And frankly, it was life changing to me in a way that I still, it, it, I feel like I'm still, my heart is still catching up with my head on the mm. experience of the last couple of years. Because what made this one unique, you know, production took us to uh, I think it was 13 countries total that we filmed in, and oftentimes because of our schedule, we would be moving back and forth uh, around different parts of the world where sometimes in the same week I would find myself in, you know, some of the richest cities on fashion runways and, you know, uh, very beautiful uh, environments. And in that same week sometimes I would be in slums or I would be in dumps or I would be by rivers or I would be with some of the least advantaged people on the planet, all of whom are connected around these very same garments. And that sense of contrast, like as simple as that might sound, um, it it just, it, it, it sort of, it upended one way that I had grown up seeing the world, and it, it really opened me to a different side. And and I think to your to your question, what really got me? I mean, the moments that um, were just marked by by tears and and real anguish were the moments when it got personal. Because I think it's it's one thing to to talk about facts or these big numbers or this big, yeah. but to see it and to experience it. You know, we we, we talk about things like environmental impact. And that, that, that phrase sounds so, it's like we're describing an esoteric, maybe somewhere, someday down the road threat. And yeah. then you go to a place where you realize, oh my God, this is actually, it's affecting real people's lives today. It just so happens that these people are some of the most least advantaged and easiest for us to forget. You know, you have yeah. those personal yeah. experiences and it's, and it's heart-wrenching. And I think in a way, it fills you with a sense of, passion and and sometimes even anger that oh, fuels you oh, to go tell yeah. the story you know yeah oh yes yes i know exactly what you mean in fact just yesterday i had uh, you know i've got a, a youtube channel called beth green tv and i uh, a couple days ago i did a video called america wake up and calm down the world is changing and it's really about how we have always felt as Americans that we were entitled to do anything we wanted anywhere in the world, take land, take resources, do anything, and that nobody was ever going to do anything about it. Well, 
9-11 was the end of that fantasy. You know, mm. they can reach us now. And we have such a sense of entitlement about being able to nab the resources of the planet. I'm not talking about the nation, but of course, you could say that even more true of the owners of the, you know, of the means of production and the industry of the world, the wealthy of the world, have that attitude up the, in, in spades. And so I got this one comment. Most people really like this video because I go through the history and I try to explain to people what the U.S. has done and how many democratically elected governments we've overthrown mm. in order to protect the United Fruit Company or the British Petroleum Company in Iran mm. and so on and say, you know, this is why they don't like us. You know, <laughs> there's a reason and uh, we're not immune and we're not entitled. So I got this, this comment from a woman who said, this is the least calm video I have ever seen mm-hmm. and I thought oh and is there something wrong with that and then she went and she berated me about not being calm but she was going to give me something calm about how we should all we can do is clean up our own backyard and I thought why should I be calm you know how can you be calm when you when you see so much exploitation and uh, torture of people of animals you know so much senseless uh, because our values are all screwed up. And, and how can you be calm when you see that it's making us crazy too? And I love that part of, about it. It's like, you know, it's not good for us to be treating our world as a, an expendable commodity. And it's not good for us to be treating other people's lives that way. It makes us sick. It makes us sick inside. And so, no, I don't feel calm. And, um, I'm glad you don't feel calm. And what is it that you, how were you raised, uh, Andrew? What was the, what's the change for you? You know, when, what, how did you feel before? Yeah, I mean, I think I grew, I grew up in uh, Atlanta, uh, on the, down the east, southeast. And, uh, you know, I had kind of middle class family, good parents, hardworking parents. And, um we were we were taught to to certainly to care about people and to care about the world around us. Um, I just think, in a lot of ways, though, I grew up still living in a very um, you know consumer driven, materialistic, modern yeah. American life where you know I was disconnected from any of the people or any of the places that were behind the things that I ate, that I wore, that I you know it was like I grew up kind of going to the store as it relates to this topic, going to the store, you know, buying clothes. Uh, you know, I didn't never had a second thought about it. Like, yeah. and if it was explained to me, it was kind of explained in that traditional free market story where yeah, it was like yeah. other poor people in other parts of the world need the work. And this is, you know, so just keep buying more stuff. Like, right. So, find, yeah. you know? <laughs> they're so they're so lucky that you're buying these clothes from Bangladesh. Yeah, you're giving them a gift every time you swipe the American Express card. It's your civic duty, right? (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think for me, it was was really interesting. Like I – so fast forward to – just after the factory collapse that James mentioned um, outside of Dhaka, I picked up a, a copy of the New York Times one morning and was standing in a, a shop getting my coffee here in Los Angeles. And I read about this clothing factory that had collapsed and taken the lives of, at that point, over a thousand um, people, mostly women, some children. And that article that day 
talked about how at the time of the collapse, these workers, um, you know, had pointed out the damages, they'd been forced back in and that they were making clothing and they listed some of the brands and they were brands that I knew, they were Mm -hmm. brands that I had bought from. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you have those moments in your life where you've believed one story and you find out something happens and in an instant that story shatters. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. And so you need to go find a new story. And I think for me, that was that was the journey of making this film was to say, I've. It's not that, not necessarily that I've been you know aggressively, uh, egregiously lied to, but I think I've been lulled into a very convenient story that maybe is not true. Well, you are you are really saying something so important, and I wish that we could, in so many different ways, help people to. Have those moments to just wake up and get another other values, and because this isn't just a story that affects affects people around the planet negatively, it affects us negatively too. What about all those jobs that left the U.S. Mm. and went across the seas, and what happened to those workers? Those workers are angry, and they've gotten very uh, regressive because they're angry at the people overseas instead of saying. Let's all get together and do something about working conditions around the world. They're just getting angry at the people who, quote, taken their jobs away. And so that leaves everybody more vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. There's a lot of misdirected passion. And it was interesting when we were in different parts of the world filming at the same time, a lot of the headlines from the U.S. were around, you know, fast food workers were protesting for wages. Um, You had Walmart workers protesting. You had and it was striking to me to realize, you know what, the workers in some of these developing countries have far more in common with the workers in the U.S. than the workers in the U.S. have with these corporations that they're somehow tricked into defending (laughs) It's it's a strange misdirection in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really is. And it's, you know, what's what's amazing about this topic is, uh, look, you know, we live in a huge world and there's a lot of there's a lot of issues and there's a lot of um, concerns. But what what interests me most is that um, we spend a lot of time looking at symptoms and there are some root causes. And when you look at the way business is being conducted, when you look at the way our society has moved to accommodate just about every need and want of some very powerful corporations to really set the stage for the world to operate on their terms. You see uh, people suffering. You see the environment be damaged. You see a loss in human dignity across the board. And that's not just a Bangladesh issue, to your point. That is a human issue. Yes. Yes, I I love the fact that you interview a guy named Richard Wolf in your uh, film. Mm. And he said, why can we question everything except capitalism? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, why can we not question that? Even Bernie Sanders, who claims to be a socialist, I mean, he's just talking about higher taxes. He's not talking about, you know, changing capitalism itself. He's just saying, you know, let's make it more humane. I, I'm not objecting to him, and I'm not taking a position because, see, in the old, 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 old days, Andrew, when I was coming, because I'm uh, a 70 now. So I became uh, a socialist when I was nine years old. And that was because I saw uh, McCarthy, uh, Senator McCarthy on television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was against the communists. And I didn't know anything about it, but I knew he was wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just knew something was wrong. And I said, well, what is the problem? You know, and I heard that what, what socialists wanted, and I'm not saying that socialism has worked, by the way. It's kind of like, I don't know what to do. But, I, you know, I heard that people who were like in the labor movement or who were socialists or even communists, that they were saying that, you know, the workers should really benefit and, and have power in society and not be dominated by the owners. And I thought, well, that sounds good. <laughs> I don't get what's the problem here. And so right then and there, I decided that I was a socialist. Well, you know, it wasn't long after that that I was reported to the FBI. And it, it was so crazy. So it was just a completely crazy thing. It is. It is. It's one of those issues that is you just can't. You, you just honestly can't question some of that stuff without really raising surprising emotion. And it's funny, when we started making the film, you know, I didn't set out to, to you know, investigate some of the or- origins of capitalism and the effects of free market. That wasn't on my yeah. mind at all. Yeah. Um, it just, you, you could not go there. Like, yeah. the story just led there. And it was amazing how... Um, yeah, it's amazing the pushback you get from people. And it's it's almost like the further we get from some of the storyline that we've been told, but the, the further we get from it being true, the more desperately we hold on to it. You know, and, that and, you know, is some, such an interesting point. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's just some of those stories, you know, and it's not just around some of the utter ruthless corporate-driven free market capitalism. It's also, you know, some of the storyline around, you know, buying more stuff is going to make you happy. I mean, yeah. you go down the list and it's like, these stories have been fundamentally proven to not lead us in the direction that so many, if not all of us, want to go. And yet, we still let them define our world. And that's, that's, that's a troubling thing to me. Well, I think part of the problem is the failure of communism. Because, um, you know, I could see that even though I declared myself as a socialist when I was nine years old and got in serious trouble and was in serious trouble most of my adult life, <laughs> for, but I, I, even though I, I kind of let go of that scenario, I, you know, I, I couldn't see a model that was different that worked. You know, what we saw as what was called communism was not at all what Marx had envisioned, you know. <laughs> you know, he thought it was going to happen in the advanced industrial societies. He thought that communism was going to come first to the, to the U.S. And instead, it started like in Russia with a peasantry and a feudal system and so on. There's a lot of things that went wrong with theory. You know, theory and practice are often separate. And I think, you know, for, from my perspective, it's all about human consciousness. You know, where I've gone is to the inner revolution. Because if we don't change human consciousness, I don't think there's a way of changing the world. When you have so-called collective, collectivization, you know, then who's running that and, and who's grabbing the power of the government that owns the means of production? I don't mean to get too technical here, but, you know, it's like it's the way we think about one another, our attitudes towards oneness, our, our, the ego of it's all about me that seems to undermine every system. And so I think for so many people, there are two things that happen. One, they got bought off by the money, because I saw it happen in the union movement. You know, the more radical unions, you know, people getting more and more money, buying into the system, and also the inability to see something different, that they could actually say, yes, let's go for this. This is really going to work. This is going to be better. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I honestly don't know what to do, except to keep harping on the inner changes that we all need to make and the willingness to stand up and say, this is not working. 
which well, is and and, and what you're and saying. It, it is. And there are times in our history, Beth, where we don't know the perfect next three set of steps, but we know that uh, something that's taking place today needs to be no longer acceptable. And I yes. think, you know, when it comes to this, like, you know, I, I don't, no one has the magic answer for, for what comes next, but I yes. think, you know, it's, it, but it is decent and humane and, uh, overdue to stand up and say things like in an industry like fashion people cannot any longer be treated as disposable commodities we should have been past that by now so in the same way in the same way that we said we we will not have slaves i think there is a serious next step in our journey as human beings to say you know the profit of some cannot come at the extreme systemic exploitation and harm of others. We cannot take yes. from the earth that which cannot be put back. You know, those are, those are just some basic things. Yeah, that I, common sense, decency, yeah. the golden rule. <laughs> really, really <laughs> Remember <constant>. that? <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's something I'd like to bring in, too, yeah. if I may. Go ahead. On a, a, one of the things I got from the film that was very powerfully impactful on me was on a very personal level, the mother and her child in Bangladesh, yeah. the mother working in that uh, garment factory for uh, so little, it was something like $3 or less per day, working uh, way more than eight hours a day. She couldn't even have a life with her daughter, her young daughter. She had to farm out her daughter to the grandparents out of town because her long hours prevented her from being with her a daughter unless she took her to the factory and had her lay on the floor all day instead of getting an education. Uh, and uh, the result is, uh, not only is she being exploited as a worker who who's doesn't have a decent wage to have a decent life, she, the, the tragedy of, uh, it's just ramifications through the family. And what has driven that is uh, the corporate greed, which were the bottom line of how much profit, how much money, the board of directors, the pressure, more and more money, more and more profit. And what's happened in, in these uh, developed countries, developing countries is that they're, the corporations go in and they say, if you don't drive down the wages, we're going to give our business to somebody else who, who will uh, pay even more uh, rock bottom level wages, even at a lower level. And so that it keeps going down, down, down. And so what we need, we need to, as a public, start saying, no, that's not right. We're not going to support that. And I'm so happy to see that on your website uh, that you're, you're proposing other corporations that are saying we're going to make sure people get a living wage we're going to make sure uh, we're taking into account uh, practices that don't pollute the environment so much and so on and so I really recommend to everybody all of our listeners to really take this to heart and stop supporting the big name manufacturers and go to the website and look up the names of the ones uh, that are maybe not as well known but they're providing very good clothing at still very affordable prices, but they're, they're driven not by uh, absolute maximizing profit, but by looking out for the, the needs of the workers to have a decent wage, to have decent living conditions, to have a decent life. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm, I want Andrew, in a minute, I want Andrew to talk about, uh, you know, some of the good news because, but there's a couple things I want to throw in first. There's another scene from that film that's a sh- that is just horrible when you see the Cambodian workers out there and the police came out with live ammunition. Mm. You know, it's like, hello. And it's not been, I mean, this is our history too. I mean, our union movement was built on blood right in Absol- the U.S. Absolutely. And, 
you know, there, it's it's always that way, and it's it's it, it's. And the other thing that I just want to throw in is uh, before I ask Andrew to talk about you know responsibility and what we can do so that we don't just sit here wringing our hands, is um, that we have to look at why we are so desperately consuming. You know, what is wrong with us? And I think it's all the same sickness. I mean, there is a soul sickness. We don't feel connected to one another. We don't feel connected to ourselves. Um, You know, we eat too much. We drink too much. We take drugs. We are alienated. We're stressed out. Too many people are, uh, are actually, even though we're in the wealthiest country of the world, we have too many Americans who are barely, you know, one paycheck away from being homeless themselves. And there's so much... There's a barrenness in our souls, if, if I may say so. And that makes people go out and consume. When I was young and I became a social activist and was involved in all the movements, you know, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the ban the bomb movement, the, the, the workplace organizing movement, the, uh, the community organizing, the rents, all that. You know, in my early years until 35 when I had a spiritual awakening and started to harangue people on the spiritual plane instead of... <laughs> On <laughs> the political thing. <laughs> uh, but I, because I was so engaged in my life, I never thought about clothes. It was like the least important thing. And I didn't care how I looked. I wasn't worried about fashion. It, it was not my life. You know, my life was about service and caring and relating to people and trying to help welfare mothers and stuff like that. And I think that when we feel connected and we feel valuable and we feel like we're doing something, we don't have the same need for consumerism and consumption you know there's something underneath this uh, and I think that has to be brought up that it's not just the economic system that it's also our own if I may call it a spiritual environment but I don't mean God by that I mean that you know our lack of connection to ourselves and one another which is not separate from our economic system by the way because it feeds it um, and I think that's important and we have to recognize that we're hurting that we are hurting. If we start to buy differently, that's meaning that we are beginning to connect to the things that we're buying, that we're connecting to the food that we're eating. We're not just like little machines that stuff ourselves and that consume and so that we can go to work every day, and that, but we're not feeling, and we're not feeling our connection. So, okay, I've had my spiritual harangue for the day but, <laughs> but I do I do believe this that it's we need an inner revolution uh, in our consciousness and in our connection for us to really change our world and to realize how much we are suffering from the very same things that are hurting others not just because we're suffering from the lack of power because the big corporations have the power uh, and not only are we suffering because our own wages are going down while we're depressing the wages across the world. All of those are facts, but we are suffering because th- there's something missing inside us. So tell us about the great people in the fashion industry who are doing something about this and how we can help. Yeah, well, it is a really exciting time uh, in the industry because I think there is a growing sense of awareness of some of these issues. And there's been some people, you know, that are heroes of mine that have been really hardline campaigners, people that have been entrepreneurs, starting businesses and brands, as James mentioned. And they've been laying groundwork and they've been kind of pushing for more recognition. And I think what's 
what's happening right now is there is a bit of a tipping point where I think a much larger percent of the public is beginning to be aware that um, there really are human hands that touch and make the things that we wear. And I think there's a, 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 a window of opportunity um, that's really opening. And, you know, in the film, we follow uh, a woman named Safia Mini who leads a clothing company called People Tree based out of London and Japan. And, uh, you know, it's one of the stories like James mentioned where they, they're making beautiful pieces, beautiful clothes um, with beautiful stories. You know, Safia just says, I wanted to make things that um, – you know, are mindful of all the hands that touch the the product along the way. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, it, look, this is what it's been for me. This is the opposite of a downer. A downer for me <laughs> is when I, I see a film or I, I, I learn something and it's so big and it's so bad and I can do nothing about it. Yeah. And someone said something to me one time. They said, don't feel guilty because <laughs> guilt, guilt is the, the recognition that you're not going to do anything about it. Hi, yay. You know, what, what's cool about this for me, and I think is really becoming cool for a lot of people, is this is one of those areas where you can begin to make some choices in your own life to align this aspect of your life up to the, the values that I believe many, many, uh, if not all of your listeners uh, that we all share on a global yeah. level. You know, so yeah. when you look at climate change, when you look at extreme poverty, global inequality, you can feel so powerless. But when you begin to trace it back, to choices, like choices yeah. as simple as I buy a shirt and I wear it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really practical. So for me, and I've got kids at home and my wife, like our family, over the last couple of years, this has been a really rich process of not wringing our hands and, and just having guilt, but saying, you know what? We could start to make some choices. We could rethink our relationship with the things that we wear. And the result has been really powerful because it's one more area of wholeness in our lives now. It's one more area where we're not detached human beings that I, that I feel connected. So I would say this, you know, as a place to start, uh, for me, the journey has been very much going from a person uh, a few years ago who had never thought about this before to a person who now cares. And the, 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 the two key things that I've done are, one, I have just kind of stepped off of the treadmill of bringing into my life a bunch of really cheap, really disposable clothes. And I started to realize that I was buying a bunch of stuff that was really cheap and it felt great at the cash register, but it actually was engineered to fall apart. And in fact, it did. And that every year <laughs> I was replacing uh, a wardrobe that I didn't even love that much. And what I've done is I've shifted to just a place beginning to say, I'm going to invest in pieces of clothing that I really love, uh, that, are, that are really going to last, and that I'm going to hold on to for a long time. Uh, and and when, we, when you do that, that simple step, that one simple adjustment has then made the space in my life. It has made space in my money and my time to then naturally begin asking that next question. Well, who made this and where did it come from and what kind of story? Uh, so, yeah, I just, you know, I think wherever you are, whoever you are, this doesn't have to be another thing that you feel, oh, great here. This gets, it really can be a way to buy into beautiful, beautiful stories and still treasure what fashion actually is. I love what you're saying. How about buy less but better quality? Absolutely. You know, if we have to buy a million things, then they have to be cheap. But if we buy one, and it lasts forever because you're so right, good clothing does last. And it looks better, and you can feel better about it. I want you to talk very quickly now about your website and all the things, the resources on that website. 
Yeah, truecostmovie.com is a place where you can come no matter where you are in the world and you can find out how to see the film. Um, it's, it's available just about everywhere. It's translated in languages. It's, it's all over the world. Um, you can also see a bunch of additional content. You can read a bunch of interesting interviews and articles. Um, and there is a Buying Better page. You can click on Learn More, Buy Better. And uh, there's a list of companies. We're actually going to um, almost double that in the coming week. It's growing. There's all <sighs> kinds of new companies. They're coming. It's amazing. Um, but it's a great place to start just to begin to look at um, some places where you don't have to sacrifice uh, beauty, but you can really buy into a story that you're going to be proud of. Yes, that you can feel good when you spend that money, that you're supporting something that's worth supporting. How has this film been um, not so much reviewed, but received? It's been really, it's, it's kind of been mind-blowing for us, to be honest. We, we started at Cannes uh, in the spring. We, we did a release theatrically. It got picked up by Netflix and taken out to about 190 countries and 20 languages. And um, the, 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 it, the, just the reach of it has been shocking. But also, it's been, a, it's been notable to see um, the, the general press, but more specifically, the business press and the fashion press really latch on to this. And it's been kind of, uh, it's been really special. We've had folks like Anna Wintour host screenings, and we've had uh, Tom Ford and Stella McCartney and, you know, big, big folks in the fashion industry embrace this and really come to the table in a humble way to say, yeah. you know what, we could do this much better. Oh, my God. Maybe there is an inner revolution. <laughs> I believe <laughs> I mean, really, give us that website again. Truecostmovie.com. And yeah, you know, just lastly, I think to your point of inner revolution, I think here's, here's the beautiful reality. We live in the first time in human history that we can actually look, see, and evaluate the impact we're having in the world in real time. And that gives us such profound opportunity that it is a, in spite of everything we're focused on and facing, it is a deeply hope-filled time. We could do something with that opportunity. We sure could. We've got the power if we use it. No dictator could stand if everybody who defended him put down their guns. Mm. You know, it's the acquiescence of all of us that keeps any system in place. James, tell us what we're doing next week, and then we'll come back and say goodbye and thank you to this wonderful guy. Great. Coming up next week, the rabid right. Love your enemy or give him hell. A debate between Madame Mazurka and Beth Green. The rabid right is not simply people expressing their opinions. It is people who are insulting, venomous, and sometimes even threatening. They have been encouraged by candidates like Donald Trump who don't care about facts or decency. So how do we respond to the anger, lies, and downright meanness of the rabid right? Next week's show is a debate between the two sides of host Beth Green in one corner as a woman who is trying to hang on to her humanity as she's being attacked still trying to reach out compassionately to her attackers in the spirit of oneness. In the other corner is Madame Mazurka, Beth's alter ego, who is a hilarious Transylvanian psychic who's been dead too long to care and is ready to duke it out with the opponents. What is the right approach of our times? Compassion or retort? You be the judge. If you feel upset by our nation's current discourse and want a chance to think through how we should respond, tune in and call in to ask questions or cast your vote. And now for a final word from Beth. Well, it may sound funny to you, but these are two parts of me that are going to duke it out on the show. And I can't wait to find out who wins because (laughs) I I want a resolution on this. I can't keep going through this. And Andrew, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. 
you are so much a part of the inner revolution. You give us hope. And I'm going to give you the last word. Which what oh, you say? it's just, it's an honor to be here. I agree with, so uh, your, your work's really inspiring to me. And I, uh, I, I just think we're living in a really, really precious uniquely special moment in history. So I think wherever you are, whatever work you're doing, uh, you're a part of the story. Don't believe you're a bystander. Don't believe you're a consumer. You are a person who makes choices and those choices make up history. You are so darned right. And we're going to start haranguing you to see if you uh, would like to sign on to our campaign to unite all movements. (laughs) Because it's really about how we have to start understanding that it's a global fight. And that's one of the things that I love about this movie. It really shows how interrelated everything is and how many fights we have to take on. People say to me, Beth, what do we have to change? And I say everything. And I know that's true. And I think we'll all be better off for it. So I want to bless you. Thank you, Andrew. It's been such a privilege and such fun having you on our show. Oh, it's been a blast. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.